On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and we're here to talk about the Trump Tax Plan, the united framework for fixing our broken tax code. Well, let's jump in. What happened? On September 27, 2017, congressional leaders released what is commonly called the United Framework for Fixing Our Broken Tax Code. Although only a nine-page document, it does provide substantial guidance where we're going and gives an idea of where the big six leaders believe the path we should follow for successful tax reform. Now, when you look at this, there are a number of areas we want to talk about. First of all, the estate tax would disappear under this plan, but because of the reconciliation process, it would come back within a 10-year period of time. During the same period of time, the generation skipping transfer tax would also disappear. And it's very likely that if this happens, when a wealthy family member dies, somebody dies, they're worth $25 million, the smart money, if the law allows it, would be to put everything into some type of GST grandfather trust, very similar to the grandfather trust we've worked with from the pre-86 era, and that trust would never again be subject to the generation skipping transfer tax. That will be probably how that's handled. This will give a great opportunity for wealthy families to thread that needle. On the individual side, what they're planning on doing is going from seven rates down to three, the top rate being 35%, with the opportunity for some type of surtax, perhaps similar to the Reagan surtax, perhaps a Buffett-like surtax where you pay a flat 30%. We don't know what that looks like, but there will be some way to capture wealthy Americans that have too low an average rate. That's kind of what we're hearing. Nothing's for sure on that. But for most of us, the top rate would be at 35%. Looks like all itemized deductions other than charitable and mortgage will disappear when you look at the framework. Now, the interesting thing is that has vast implications people haven't thought about. Casualty and theft losses, we just went through two hurricanes. I don't have to talk about this much, but everybody knows how painful that is. And the government has been able to somewhat help people in those situations, at least help them indirectly through the tax code. That could possibly disappear unless they retain that. Now, the other thing that's out there, which I'll cover, but it's very esoteric, and it will take a minute to get your mind around it. Let's say that you had a client that died in 2015, very large estate, they had a million-dollar IRA, and they paid $400,000 of estate tax. Now, for income tax purposes, they're able to deduct that estate tax when they eventually take the money out of the IRA. Very easy rule, right? But if all itemized deductions go away, and they go and they take out their RMD in 2018 and 2019, they won't be able to shelter any of that RMD with a 691C deduction. So this becomes a very important issue. From a big picture standpoint, it's typical blocking and tackling issues of accelerating losses, deferring gains, accelerating expenses, deferring income. That will be the gist of what we do. No effective date, but people that are in the service or used to be in the service that I've spoken to tell me that it's very hard to go back to a retroactive date of January 1st, 2017, if this doesn't pass to the end of the year, because as a very practical matter, too many forms have to be revised for filing season. So the further we get out, the more likely the effective date would be January 1st, 2018, or perhaps even 2019. But let's focus on 18 for today's conversation. Now, on the business tax side, the C-Corp rate would drop to 20%. The business tax rate for S-Corps and LLCs that have a trader business. So your client owns 
a manufacturing business, they make $5 million a year, it's an S-Corp. That would be taxed at 25%. That's what it's looking like under this proposal. Now, finally, let's talk a little bit about fiduciary tax returns. There has to be a very careful examination for people that have died in 2017 of what fiscal year end you're going to take. Now, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, I'll take a 12-31 year end, and then on January 1st, 2018, I get the new rate. And that seems to be the right decision. However, if you're not filing a 706 and you want to take those expenses on the 1041 and you pay them in 2018, but all itemized deductions have disappeared, you might not be able to take those itemized deductions. And that's going to be a problem. That might argue for going with a year end of 1130, November 30th, 2017, which would then go until November 30th, 2018. And what you'd have is you could take the deductions during that period of time. Because remember, when you have these transitions, historically, it's been years beginning on or after a certain date. So that becomes very important. Watch carefully what year ends you pick. So we're probably going to go from seven to three brackets, eliminate most itemized deductions. Business tax rates would come down. Now, including in the itemized deductions would be the elimination of deducting state and local income taxes. And that, of course, will have a very big effect on how people plan. What we're going to see there is in the states that allow it or do not prevent it, there will be a run to putting investment assets outside of the state. So if I'm in California, maybe I put all my investment assets in a trust in South Dakota or in Nevada, and I avoid or at least delay California income tax on that. Very complicated, but at the end of the day, all of us are going to have to get smarter on how to do those things. Now, the estate tax. What we're likely to see is a repeal of the estate tax and possibly a continued step-up in basis. But there's two other proposals out there. One idea would be to have a carryover basis. And the second idea would be to go to a Canadian-type system where you have a realization event at death. We do not know what's going to happen. Certainly, when you read Mr. Trump's website before he was president, when he was running for president, that contained the worst written sentence in the English language where they tried to discuss whether there would be a step up or a carryover or a realization. And dozens of my friends read that and I asked them, do you know what it says? And no one could figure out what that sentence says. So we may not know where the policy experts in the White House are going with this. We certainly know that in the original House plan from last summer or the summer before, that plan envisioned no estate tax, but a step up in basis. Now remember, on the estate tax side, we have the Byrd Rule. And the Byrd Rule allows senators during the reconciliation process to block legislation if it could possibly increase significantly the federal deficit beyond a 10-year term or is otherwise an extraneous matter as set forth in the Budget Act. English translation is we are going to end up with a 10-year repeal of the estate tax. That's the, probably the best they're going to be able to do. With that said, what becomes so critical here is if the estate tax goes away for 10 years, does it really matter? I don't think that's going to change most of our practices one bit. So for people that are well under the $11 million, they're not going to be concerned. But unless you represent somebody that's 100 years old that has an estate tax problem, they're going to be the only ones that really will take to heart that they'll probably die within this 10-year period of time. Certainly, I have clients, many clients in their early 90s and mid-80s who 
10 years, you know, they're not going to take the bet that they will die during that period of time. They will continue planning because what you don't want to do is have $15 million today in 2017 and wake up on your 97th birthday in 2027 and be worth twice that and have all that growth included in your taxable estate and lose 40% of that to the estate tax. The blocking and tackling of gifting away our unified credit, making annual exclusion gifts, doing grats, and other similar techniques will continue. If the generation skipping transfer tax goes away, there will be a tremendous emphasis on how do we pack more money into dynasty trusts or grandfather GST trusts, whatever we call them. So keep in mind, we will see a sunset there. Now, what do we do in the meantime? Again, the easy things are tax-free gifts, perhaps 10-year grats, and design those to expire before sunset, meaning we do a nine-year grant if we have a 10-year repeal. And then if we died in the meantime, we possibly get a step up. If we live long enough, all the growth will be excluded from our estate. Now, grats payable to grandfather trusts, this might be a real opportunity. We may be able to do GST planning using grats if the generation skipping transfer tax goes away. So those are things that are going to be very hard to analyze. We have to wait till we see statutory language. Now, on the AMT side, there are a couple things to think about. One is there's the urgent issue of how do you, and just think about it in your personal context, how do you time the payment of your state and local taxes this year? If we pay, I know myself, if I pay them in December, possibly get thrown into the AMT. Now, but if I wait to January, I may not be able to deduct them. And that's where once we see where this is going, all of that is just going to have to be modeled on a client-by-client basis. And that's why what I'm doing right now, what I'm going to work very hard on, is really looking at every client we touch, identifying the issues they're going to be up against, talking to them about that, and really educating them now on the possibilities of what could happen so when it happens, we can move like lightning to solve their problems rather than having to look at the law, understand the possibilities, educate the clients, and then move. I think in all likelihood this passes in December, and we're not going to have enough time to educate ourselves, educate our clients, and move quickly. So if it's a timing issue... I can easily teach my very smart clients the issue and say, if it goes this way, this is what we'll do. If it goes this way, this is what we'll do. Does that make sense to you? And then we really improve the process. Now, on the AMT, there's something very scary I want to talk about. Say you had a client that exercised a million dollars of options, ISOs, in 2014. They would have paid $280,000 of AMT. Just assume they paid the 28%. Their federal tax, they wrote a check to the government for 280. Now, we know later when they sell, they're going to have a regular capital gain. And that regular capital gain would carry with it a $200,000 tax cost. But of course, they get a $200,000 AMT credit, which would offset that incrementally, they'd pay no tax. Now, if that is the case, that's exactly how the law should work. But what if that's a 2017 sale? What if they wait to 2018? If they wait to 2018, they pay the $200,000 of regular capital gain, but they get no credit. Because if the AMT just disappears, vanished from the face of the earth, then where are we? We are in a position where we can't pick up that credit and you're possibly going to pay an incremental $200,000 in tax. 
that is a problem. And so if you have clients that have exercised ISOs in the past, the first thing you do when all this starts to come out is you look, will my AMT credit disappear? And if my AMT credit is going to disappear, maybe we have to jump and sell the stock we purchased with the ISOs in December of 2017. Now, that all seems very easy until we look beyond the tax law to the securities law. What do many of your clients have, the senior executives that might have ISOs? They have blackout periods. And when they have a blackout period, that creates a problem. That's a period of time they are not allowed to trade the stock in their own company under the SEC rules. So I might be in a position where I'd love to sell in December, but I simply can't. And I think we're going to have to talk to some really smart people and find workarounds to that. I don't know if people could drop that into some type of blind trust in the meantime so they could possibly jump, but I'll make some calls to people in New York. I'll figure that out for all of us and we'll figure out where to go. Now, deductions, on the deduction side, looks like we're going to go to a $24,000 standard deduction, but that means a couple of things. The one thing it definitely means is that many people that are currently itemizing will no longer itemize, which will be a good thing. Okay, it will make their lives easier, and it will unfortunately reduce some of the commercially prepared tax returns, and the folks that do that work will have to adjust their practices. Now, the other thing that we should talk about is the 691C deduction. Again, this is similar to the ISO issue. It's tricky, but let's walk through it again. I have an IRA. I died. I died in 2015 on that IRA. We paid $400,000 of estate tax. That $400,000 of estate tax is deductible for income tax purposes. And my total combined burden between the estate tax and the income tax is about 64%. The likely proposal would eliminate itemized deductions, and that means you would lose your 691C deduction. That is going to create an anomaly wherein December of 2017, if this plays out like this, if you have any clients with large inherited IRAs where there's actually an estate tax paid, you're going to have to take a very hard look at whether you should pull all the money out of that inherited IRA, pay income tax, take your 691C deduction, but only pay income tax on the gross amount minus the 691C deduction, because that 691C deduction, unless it's grandfathered, will no longer exist. And the thing about it is, will Congress even recognize the need to grandfather that? Or if, if they recognize it, will they have time to deal with it? Remember the time frame they're working on. Now, the proposal from Congress also does mention that the tax law should retain the benefits and encourage work, higher education, and retirement security. So basically, that's been left in the hands of the committee. Tax reform will aim to maintain or raise retirement plan participation of workers and the resources available for retirement. The framework envisions repealing many other provisions to make the system simpler and fair. It doesn't look like anything will be done with the anomaly for hedge funds and VC firms where a lot of that is taxes, capital gain instead of ordinary income, but we don't know what's gonna happen in negotiation to pick up some Democratic votes in the Senate. Keep in mind in the Senate, we only have 52 Republicans votes, so if they lose a couple of people along the way, they may need to bring some Democrats along, which could be next impossible. Retirement plans, what you need to look out for is a Senate provision, which didn't make it into this framework, which would create a five-year rule. I die, the money has to come out of my IRA in five years. That is a problem. We have 
been working on solutions, including CRTs, Roth conversions. Uh, we kind of know what to do, but there will be a big education process surrounding that. You'll have to educate your clients on what these new rules are. The other thing people often talk about is Rothification. That means eliminating the deductions for pension plans and basically turning pension plans into Roths. We do not envision that happening, but on the other hand, no one knows how this is going to play out. Or maybe people with lower income can still take a deduction, but with higher income, part of that deduction is phased out. So what are you going to do in the meantime? Obviously, there's the blocking and tackling of accelerating losses, deferring gains, picking the right fiscal year for estates and trusts. If you have estates where we have to fund pecuniary bequests, maybe you defer the funding of the pecuniary bequest until we see what the capital gains rates are going to be. Also keep in mind that if we end up with a repeal of itemized deductions for state and local taxes, you may want to spend a little bit of time learning about how to create trusts in South Dakota, Delaware, Wyoming, Alaska, and Nevada, where you can avoid your state and local taxes on that money. On the corporate side of things, corporate rate will come down to about 20%, which is a good thing. And then that will apply to C corporations. There are provisions in the law that will allow U.S. multinationals with dollars overseas to bring those dollars back to the United States on a very tax favorable basis. And then the rate for S corporations and LLCs that have trades or businesses looks like that rate will fall from its current rate, largely of 39.6%, down to a rate of 25%. So that would be a very big thing for manufacturing businesses. If you have estates right now that have S corporations or LLCs in them, you're going to, to take a very hard look at what year end you pick because you do not want to lose the ability to value yourself of what looks like is going to be a 25% rate. On the capital investment side of things, what the proposals envision is for a period of five years, capital investments would be deductible, kind of like a mega 179 deduction. This provision, though, under the framework would not include structures. We take structures to mean buildings, basically, but I'm sure the definition is much more subtle. Now, this will include investments made after September 27, 2017, which is good because then there'll be no freezing of the economy where people wait to buy things until the law changes. Very interesting. We think cost segregation may be more beneficial in the short term because when you do a cost segregation, you end up with five and seven and 15-year property classes. It may be possible to write those off immediately. So that could be a big benefit. Now, finally, the other proposal that's out there that we're going to have to carefully monitor is that the deduction for net interest expense incurred by C-corporations will be partially limited. And we don't know how that's going to play out in the S-Corp or LLC world. Hopefully, there'll be a carve-out for real estate and for small business. So we really don't know exactly how this will play out, but keep an eye on this. Maybe debt that's in place will be grandfathered. What you want to watch out for, though, is the real estate side, because if Congress were to take away the interest on real estate, I'm relatively certain that would cause a tremendous recession in the building world. People wouldn't be putting up apartment buildings. And then if that happens, of course, rents will increase. The person that will get hurt the most in that would be the person right out of school, earning a very low wage, struggling with getting their financial life together, living in an apartment. Eventually that apartment rent will come up. So we have to be 
careful. Congress really needs to watch where they're going with this interest expense deduction. I'm sure there'll be many economists commenting on that. We've really covered a lot of ground today. It's always an honor to be here with you, and I look forward to updating you as things progress through the system. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler with an overview of the unified framework for fixing our broken tax code. Thank you for joining us today.